Good morning. My name is Annie. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11, and chapter 2, 1 and 2. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed, avowed, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My house derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like the God, our God. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Gentry, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 18 to 25. I believe that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the coming glory that is to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it but in hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first crop of of the harvest, also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We are saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, it isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Jillian. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 26, 36 to 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks, a God who listens, a God who responds. And so, Lord, we call on you again and we say, Lord, let your word bring life and light into our hearts today. That as we listen to it, change us, lift us up. And in all of this, glorify yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're starting a new series from the book of 1 Samuel. And um, uh, we love to do series of books of the Old Testament uh, in in the first part of the year, and then uh, at least our rhythm right now is in the fall. We end up doing a series from somewhere in the New Testament, and 
And so we're going to spend from here all the way up until right before Easter, we'll be in 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at some of the key stories uh, around. And then we were, when we were talking about what should we name this series, you know, I threw out sort of the cheesy ideas, like we would call it The Crown, you know, it's about kings and thrones. And then, you know, I said, I'd never seen the show, but I thought maybe we would call it Game of Thrones. They said, no, let's not do that. And then we, <laughs> we, we decided to call it Kingdom and Chaos, uh, the idea that this whole book is about how God's kingdom arrives in a world of chaos. Uh, and moreover, how we sometimes add to the chaos when we try to be in charge of things. When we try to hold on to it and say, let's do it our way or the way that we think is right. In fact, First Samuel comes right out of uh, the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's a phrase that is used over and over again in the book of Judges where it says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so 1 Samuel comes on the heels of that as a way of saying, you see what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? There is chaos. And so 1 Samuel invites us to reflect on how God's kingdom arrives on the earth, even as it is in heaven. And this morning, we're going to talk about Hannah's prayer. The first couple chapters of 1 Samuel actually open with Hannah's story. And Hannah crying out to God, Hannah's difficulty. But before we open that, I want you to just keep in mind a couple questions that we'll be holding in our hearts as the series goes on. The first question that maybe we'll be meditating on throughout the series is, who is running the world? Who's really in charge here? Who gets to say how things happen and how things go? Have you ever showed up to a business meeting or a convention or something and it's not clear who's leading the meeting and everyone's sort of looking at each other and someone's thinking, well, maybe I'll take over. I've got an agenda here. And everyone else says, oh, someone else might say, wait a minute, I've got a real agenda here. And then you sort of wonder, is that who's in charge actually of this place? Or maybe you've, you've taken your kid to a, a, a daycare or an activity thing and you realize, oh, this is all being run by 15-year-olds, nothing wrong with 15-year-olds but it might make a parent just sort of panic a little bit and say, is there anyone else that's maybe a little bit more experienced that's in charge around here? That's a little bit of the, that's one of the questions we're going to think about in 1 Samuel. Who's running the world? Like really, like who's actually in charge? And then another question is, how does God bring his kingdom on earth? So in the Hebrew prayer, a blessing over bread, it says, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, blessed are you, Lord our God, Melech HaOlam, the king of the universe. There's a sense in which the Hebrew confession is that God is king of the universe, and yet all the evidence that we see seems to run in the con to the contrary. And so you're saying with your prayers, you're the king of the universe, and you're looking outside as of kings from wicked nations are overrunning your people and slaughtering your towns. And you're thinking, really? Are you? And so 1 Samuel says, okay, God, if since you are the king, how will your kingdom actually arrive? And I think that in our daily lives, these are some of the very same questions we wrestle with. When we think about things that are beyond our control, whether it's a doctor's report or a situation with family or friends or loved ones or a situation at our job or maybe political turmoil or whatever it is, we're so aware. And maybe it is true that actually for us in North America, things are safer than there's ever been, yet because we're more aware globally than we've ever been, there's this sense that actually the world is just, it's, it's sitting precariously on the edge here. And so we have these very same questions. And when we look at this story, the way that it's told in the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel, I'd like to invite you to hear it this morning like a three-act play. 
a three-act play that moves us through the story of Hannah. And so act one is Hannah's plight. Act one introduces us not only to the main characters, but to the depths of Hannah's plight. And so in verse one, it says, there was a certain man of Ramathayim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeharoham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And I know all of you are like, oh, that guy. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Panina. And Panina had, Panina had, no ch- had children, but Hannah had no children. Now right off the bat, the Bible introduces us to a complicated domestic situation. And if you're sitting here this morning like, I can't go to church because church is full of perfect people and the Bible is full of perfect couples and perfect marriages, where exactly? Like, where exactly are you looking in the scriptures and finding a model family? This is a soap opera beginning. And you're like, oh, oh, really? Two? And, and let's be clear about something, okay? So the scriptures, we ought not sanitize them and make them seem so familiar to us as if it's taking place in 21st century America. We, they ought to be strange to us in some ways. There should be uh, um, moments where we're reading the scriptures and thinking, that is weird. Like, that's bizarre. Yeah, because it's removed from us um, chronologically. We're distant from this text by several thousand years. It's removed from us geographically. It's taking place in another region of the world, probably a region that many of us maybe have never even visited. It's removed from us culturally. We're like, I don't get that way of thinking. It's removed from us linguistically. The language is different. So there's a sense in which we need to look closer if we're going to get into the play, the three-act play here. And one of the things we have to realize is in the ancient Near East, children were a necessity for several reasons. One of the reasons they were a necessity is children were an economic necessity. If a, if a person or a couple did not have kids, the business would not actually happen. There would be no one to actually farm the land, work the land, raise the livestock, and actually succeed. But, but more than economically, there was also a sense in which legally, um, they, could not, they would have no inheritance. So imagine you work your whole life and you sort of do kind of get a farm going, knowing that as soon as you get too sickly or too weak to care for it, it's gone. It gets dissolved back into the central pot. And you say, what? I don't get to get you because there is no legal heir who will take it. And then there's also a sense that this is a necessity for domestic life as parents are aging and all this stuff. So, so that's one of the reasons why polygamy was so common in the ancient Near East. Now, here's what we have to be clear about. This, nowhere in the scripture does God ever condone it. Nowhere does he ever say, this is my will, go ahead and do this. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, if anything, the scriptures show us repeatedly how awfully problematic, messy, disastrous those households are, right? If anything, it exposes us to the pain of it. But here's where I think we should take heart. We just sang, there's no story you can't redeem. There is no situation, no story that you can say, that God looks at and says, Ooh, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. I don't deal with that. You say, well, I had a broken marriage. Or I had a divorce. So I coming out of a household of pain or abuse. There's no situation, no origin story, no family backdrop, no genogram of your messed up family that God looks at and says, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with that one. God doesn't have to refer you to someone else. You read 1 Samuel, and right away you realize, oh, this is what you deal with. 
You do get involved in messes. You're not waiting for people to sort of resemble the Waltons, the old TV show. You're not waiting for people to resemble like this perfect kind of postcard. And then God says, oh, my kind of people. All right, what do you all need? And that's what we think though, isn't it? We sort of think God is waiting for me to get my act together. And then when I do, he'll come near. First Samuel says, in the middle of the chaos, even domestic chaos, God is at work. And that should right away make us perk up and listen. And so then the story goes on in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. You're seeing a tenderness in this man and Hannah's husband. He gave her a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, Penina, used to provoke her, Hannah. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. This is a brutal situation. This is worse than any sort of a bullying situation than we can, or maybe it's like some of the more painful bullying situations we can imagine. Maybe a Penina is the original mean girl. And Hannah is devastated. Listen, there's sometimes you don't eat and drink when you go to the house of the Lord because you're doing a fast. And it's a fast of your own choosing. Hannah is fasting because she's distraught. This is not Hannah saying, oh, it's a new calendar year. I'm on a new diet program. I'm going to try intermittent fasting. You know, this is not Hannah trying some new fat. This is not Hannah kind of, kind of saying, oh, I'm going to, I love the Lord. And I'm just going to start the year out with 21 days of prayer like New Life Churches. You know, this is Hannah saying, things are so bad, I can't even eat. I can't even get myself to eat. And some of you, I know, you know this kind of grief. You know this kind of pain. You can't even get yourself to eat. And then verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? I mean, like, is this guy like the original clueless husband? Like, seriously, bro? Like, you're, like where have you been? Like, are you even awake at home? Like, honey, what's wrong? What's going on? Why aren't you eating? And she's like, are you kidding me right now? And then he goes on, he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? I mean, this is like, this is like adventures in missing the point, you know? <laughs> it's like a classic husband move. Like your wife is going through a crisis and you think somehow it's about you. You're like, this is a rejection of me, isn't it? It's because I'm not good enough. And she's like, what, would you just stop it already? No, it's got nothing to do with you. And one of the things we have to realize is that all human community will fail. All human relationships have a limit. Even the best ones. You might be blessed with great friends. You might be blessed to be in a great marriage. You might be blessed to have a great church. I hope you do. And even then, you will find Ah, those people don't get it. Because the best friend, the best spouse, the best church can't give you the thing that you are most desperate for. But we don't realize that sometimes, isn't it? 
So sometimes we will run into young couples who are into their marriage and like, I don't get it. My spouse is just not really fulfilling me anymore. I don't feel alive anymore. And you're like, well, all spouses are going to come, come up short. And there's going to be a point at which you have to say, the thing I am most desperate for is something that only God can give me. All friendships are going to be, you can't say, oh, my community, my community's not so life-giving. I just need to find a community that gets me and that celebrates me more. I'm, I'm moving on. Hey, you know, I'm going to leave the haters. You're like, well, okay, I get, maybe, sometimes you do need to move on from your community. That is true. But other times you need to realize, you know what, maybe the thing that you're actually desperate for is something that no human being can give to you. And so Hannah realizes, I've got a great husband. Elkanah's the sweetest dude, gives me double portion. He's a little bit insecure, but he's a sweet guy. But my problem's not Elkanah. My, I have something that only God can grant. I need something only God can grant. And right off the bat, we're set up to understand that the God of the scriptures is a God who is attentive to us. And that's the first thing I want to say. God is not distant or disinterested. God is not indifferent to us. God is present and attentive. Hannah knows this. Hannah knows this in the midst of her desperation, in the midst of her despair. She knows God is not indifferent. See, here's where we sometimes miss this, okay? We have listened to so many philosophers talk about God in a concept sense. Do you believe in God or not believe in God? I can prove God. I can prove that there was an, there was an original source of all of this stuff. And so we get so engaged in these philosophical arguments for the existence of God. All God is is some abstract concept. And then maybe you've heard the expression, the unmoved mover, Right? The idea that there was one person who started it all and he's not moved, but he moves. He sets everything else in motion. Okay, there's something true about that. But if we're not careful, we start to imagine a stoic, sovereign God. A God who is detached from the world and who is sovereign. And actually, some versions of Christian theology emphasize sovereignty so much that it creates for us a God who is unmoved by humans. And so maybe you've, you, you've heard that, that uh, vision or that imagination of God. And so you've even wondered, why would I pray? Like, why would I pray? Because God's sovereign. And so he's just going to do what he wants to do. And so we've imagined a kind of caricature version of sovereignty, a kind of cartoon sovereign God. And so what this looks like, what this God looks like is a God that is so steady and stoic and unmoved and detached. And he says, I will do my will on the earth. And we're like, okay, whatever. But when you read, and I encourage you, read 1 Samuel with us in all of its glorious messiness. Read it. When you read the pages of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, maybe even in the Old Testament, however you need to hear that this morning, you don't see a God who is detached from the world. You see a God who's involved in his world. And compare this to some of the ancient other stories of gods. Let's take the Greeks, for example. The Greeks had mythologies of their gods. And all of the stories are essentially about what the gods are doing. And how the gods are clashing with one another. And then as the gods clash, that, that affects human events. 
And so the gods are angry, oh, and then humans, ah, you know, there's thunder and all of this stuff. It's the gods, actions of the gods spill out into the world of humans. But in the Old Testament, it's the other way around. The actions of humans move God. They actually get his attention. You know, it's not, you're not in a relationship with a real person when they don't bend towards you. When they're not moved by you. Maybe this is a sign of an unhealthy relationship when you're with a person who only wants to impose, right? God, in the Old Testament, if anyone could just want this this to be a one-way street, it could be God. But the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Scripture says, what's on your mind? I'm listening. The God of the Old Testament weeps. The God of the Old Testament, these stories in the Old Testament gets angry. We're like, yeah, no, I've heard about that, right? But even anger is one sign, one evidence of love and investment. Now, I'm not talking about unhealthy anger, right? But, but we, you all know, and maybe you grew up in a home like this where your parents were so oblivious to you, so indifferent towards you, that even when you broke the rules, you, you didn't get a response out of them. And so maybe you learn the pattern of like, well, I'll just try to do more things and rebel in worse ways just so I could like in- provoke their ire because at least then I'll know that they care, right? It's kind of a, a, a weird way to do it. But, but in the Old Testament, even when God gets angry, it's a demonstration of him saying, no, 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 don't do that. I care about you. I don't want to see you run off. Can I just, I, I know you don't. I. And so there's a God that's in a dynamic relationship with us. Act two. Hannah's prayer. So from act one, we see that God's not distant. He's present. He's active. He's attentive. Act two, this is actually Hannah's prayer. Verse 10, it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now, if you just listen to this, you might get the impression that Hannah is bargaining with God. That she's saying, okay, God, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. This is kind of a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch that, That's not what's happening. What Hannah is doing here is she's acknowledging that God is God. And she's taking the posture of surrender. It's very much like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I don't want to drink this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Hannah, in a way, is saying, I don't want to not have a child. But if you do hear my prayer, I want you to know he's not mine, but he's yours. And I turn around and and surrender him back. You see, the thing that we learn through this is that prayer is actually not about using God to get our way. It's about God having his way with us. Prayer is not about us using God to to get our own way. It's about God having his way in and through us. Hannah doesn't pray with this sort of technique in mind. You know, sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh, teach teach me how to pray. I want to learn how to pray power prayers. And Jason alluded to us this morning, you know, so maybe it's about a formula. Do I pray in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I mean, which one has more magic? So what if I do this? What if I do that? Maybe if I quote more scripture, like, like more scripture is better than my words, right? So if the scripture ratio is high, then I can get all my prayers answered. And some 
charlatan Christian teachers out there are trying to promise you this. Ways to guarantee your prayers being answered. Have enough faith, give enough money, do this, and then blah, blah, blah. Voila, here comes an answered prayer. That's not what Hannah's doing. So you can do all of the same things, but you can remain on the throne. And basically you're saying, I'm going to use prayer to get what I want. And Hannah says, God, this has always been about you having your way, so you do this. Now, now look with me at 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. This is, this is the, the tail end of Hannah's song, and she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, hang on a minute. There is no king yet. Hannah's starting to sing about God giving strength to his king. There's no king. There's just Eli, who's kind of a corrupt priest. We're going to go back and read those verses here in a minute. <laughs> but there's no king. You see, here's what I want you to see. God will bring about a king for Israel. It, it will be part of his plan to bring his kingdom. And we know the actual chosen king is David, right? But even before David, there was this other king named Saul. But guess who anointed both of them? Samuel. And guess who Samuel was? Hannah's son. You see, if Hannah had not surrendered herself to the Lord and said, you do this, Lord. You have your, if you answer this prayer, this child will be yours. If Hannah had not done that, there would be no Samuel, no Samuel, no Saul, no David, no kingdom coming to Israel. You never know how your prayer will be a way of participating in God's kingdom coming. You never know. You never know how your prayer will actually be a way of participating in God's kingdom coming. Some of you are here today because of the prayers of not just a parent, but of your mothers. I'm here today because of the prayers of my mother. And I know several of you are like, oh, that's true. There was a time I wasn't really interested, but my mom kept praying. Some of you are the mothers in this room, and you're praying. I want to say to you today, keep praying. Keep praying. You never know how God will bring about his kingdom on earth because you're praying from this place of surrender, praying from this place of like, God, they're not my kid anyway, <laughs> not because I want to disown them, <laughs> not because have you seen what they're, but, but as a way of saying, God, She's yours. He's yours. So come on and have your way in them anyway. Do it. Others of you are here today reluctantly, hoping to outrun the prayers of your mother. You might as well give up. <laughs> you might as well stop. You might as well say, stop running. Because God listens to those prayers. God hears those prayers. And so... Back up with me in the story, verse, 10, uh, verse 12. As Hannah is praying, chapter 1, verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. I mean, can Hannah catch a break here? It's like her husband's taking it personally. The priest is like convinced that she's a drunk, you know? 
And then Eli makes like the biggest ministry faux pas. Like if you are curious about something, like ask a question out of curiosity, not a question out of being accusatory, you know. But Eli goes, hey, how long will you go on being drunk? Like, wow, that's a great opening. How about, hey, Hannah, great to see you in church today. You okay? You know, he goes straight for it. How long are you going to be drunk, woman? You know, life safety. We got a situation in aisle one. And then he says, put your wine away from you. <laughs> he says, your wine. Like, do you think she brought a flask to the temple with her? Like, how, who do you think this woman is? Like, Eli, you're clueless, man. Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I can't help but notice the parallel here. Eli thinks she's been taking in a substance that's making her crazy. She says, no, 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 I'm in this state because I've been pouring out my very being before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace. The shalom of God be with you, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Lord, uh, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Isn't that interesting? And then her face was no longer sad. She rose to eat. Now, we know how these things work. She was not pregnant yet. She hadn't left the temple yet. And yet the pronouncement of the priest was enough for her to say, okay, God's peace, God's favor. All right, I'll get up. Let's go. I'll eat. Rise and eat and no longer have a sad face. Act three, Hannah's praise. Her plight, her prayer, and now her praise. First Samuel 2 verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. But that's like another way of saying my strength. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She opens up her song by singing about who God is, just like we were this morning. Just like we were saying, God, this is who you are. This is your name. You're faithful. And she starts saying that there's no one like you, God. This is the opening refrain of her song. But here's where we often stop. We think that we should praise God for who he is and not what he does. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. Oh, worship God for who he is and not for what he does. The Old Testament does not divide things up that way. The psalmist is always going back and forth, singing about who he is and singing about what he does. And then listen, so listen to the song as it goes on. Verse three, talk no more so very proudly. Yeah, I'm talking about you, Panina. Can you hear me now? Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You got that, Panina? <laughs> the Lord kills in the Lord and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. Look what happens in verse 6. 
she starts singing about what the Lord does. The Lord does this. The Lord brings down and raises up. And then verse seven, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. The Lord brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. This is exactly what Mary will quote, by the way, generations later in Luke's gospel, the Magnificat. She's quoting Hannah, but Hannah sang it first. Mary's just singing a cover. <laughs> Hannah's the, she wrote this. Hannah says, this is what you do, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, we said earlier that we don't believe in a God who's detached from history, a God who's detached from space and time, and he's just sort of this floating being in the cosmos, the unmoved mover. No, we believe in a God who's moved by us. In the same way, we don't believe that our role as God's people is to be detached worshipers. But sometimes we think that. We come to church, and we're like, well... I mean, I'm going through a lot of junk right now, but I guess, you know, God doesn't care, so just, you know, whatever, I just, I'll, I'll just sing about who he is. Oh, God, you're so awesome, you're so great, you're so wonderful. And we become detached worshipers. Listen, does Hannah's song sound like the song of a detached worshiper? No, this sounds like a woman who's deeply invested in how God is acting in the world. And so she praises God for it. She says, God, I know who you are. I know that you are holy. There's no one like you. And then she says, you're the one who lifts up the lowly. You're the one who brings down the proud. You're the one who shatters the boasts of the proud and the mighty. You're the one who raises up the oppressed. You're that God. See, God reveals who he is by what he does. God reveals who he is by what he does. We don't divide those things up. You know, I just wish worship God for who he is, but not what he's done. I, I don't want to do that. That just seems so, like, functional or utilitarian. No, 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 no. Listen, we know who this God is because we have seen his acts. We know who this God is. This is why I, I, I think we go wrong when we try to talk with people who don't believe in God we go wrong when we try to take them to step one, just believe in God. What God? Which God? The God the Muslims are talking about? Or maybe there's this other move to try to show how much common ground there is. And so let's just, let's just speak about the divine in the universe. I'm not interested in adding more ambiguity to the conversation about God. I'm interested in adding more particularity to the conversation about God. Because sometimes someone will say to me, well, I, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, what kind of a God would da 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 And say, okay, great. Tell me about the God you don't believe in, believe in because I don't believe in that God either. But let me tell you about the God I do believe in. I believe in the God who is revealed in space and time and history. I believe in the God who acted. I believe in the God who looked out at the waters of chaos and 
spoke and said, let there be lights. I believe in the God who called Abraham out of his father's house and said, come on and I will make you the father of many nations. I believe in the God who said to Abraham and Sarah who were too old and who were too barren and said, I will bring out of the deadness of your womb new life and that life will be for the blessing of all nations. I believe in the God who when Israel, the great nation, was found and lost in slavery in Egypt, who raised up a deliverer and called them out of Egypt so that they could worship him. I believe in the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to enter into space and time and history carried a Roman cross, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's why the creed names him. He wants us, the, the Christians from hundreds of years ago want us to know we're not making this stuff up. We're not talking about existential games with our minds. We can say, imagine there was a savior who died. No, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died on a Roman cross. And this man is the son of God. I believe in the God who on that Sunday morning spoke and raised him up from the dead. And Paul says, listen to this, Paul says in Romans, he starts out by describing God as the one who called Isaac out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And then he goes on and says, and he is the God who called Jesus up from the dead. And then Paul says, and by the way, this is the God who justifies the ungodly. How do we know this God? By the way he's acted in space and time and history. I don't care about your philosophical concept of God. I don't care if you want to argue and dismantle the concept of the notion of the divine. Have at it. I want to talk to you about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what the scriptures call us to. Listen, there is no hope. There's no hope for us if we're talking about a conceptual God. There's no hope for us. Because if he just is some concept, the divine, how do you know he's listening? How do you know he knows about your plight? How do you know he knows about your sin? How do you know he really will redeem? I don't know. I heard a guy recently describe himself as a Catholic Buddhist. And then he went on to talk about how he believes in the beauty of redemption. And I wanted to say, excuse me, but Buddhists don't believe in redemption. They believe in dissolving into the oneness of the universe. But when you find yourself aching for redemption, when you find yourself wondering if the brokenness of your story and the messiness of your domestic crisis, if the pain of your barrenness can ever be rescued, there is only one who redeems, and his name is Jesus. I'm fired up today because I don't want you to chase after a false hope. I don't want you to go find some concept. Oh, I'm a theist. I believe in God. I don't care. I want to know if you believe in Jesus. Have you heard what Jesus has done? Hannah has a corrupt priest named Eli pronounce God's peace over her, and that was enough. We're going to find out next week just how corrupt Eli and his sons were. 
But a corrupt priest pronounces peace over Hannah and she rises up and begins to eat, washes her face, says, I'm no longer sad, starts to sing. Can I tell you the good news, church? There is a priest who is greater than Eli. There is a priest who is righteous in every way. There is a priest who is without sin. There is a priest who died in your place and for your sin. There is a priest who rose from the dead and said to his followers, peace be with you. And this priest, Jesus, declares peace over you today. I know that you haven't seen the answers to all the things you're praying for. I know that. I haven't either. I know that we are waiting for a great someday when all our prayers will be turned into praise. I'm waiting for that day too. But in the meantime, we can rise and eat at the Lord's table because there's a priest named Jesus who says the peace of God be with you. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.